0: It's me, Weird Medieval Guy Fieri. Yeah. And I'm here on tour, sampling all the finest taverns, alehouses, and inns that medieval Europe has to offer. This time, this week, on whatever the acronym is for that, <laughs> I'm joined by Olivia, a tavern wench. Woohoo. Wow. Hey, tavern wench.
1: You really flipped the script on me there. Yeah,
0: that's right. Hang on.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I wasn't finished. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Medieval Guy Fieri. Tavern Wedge Olivia has an exciting new product
0: that she wants to show us on this episode of... I can't remember the name
1: of the show. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Where are the Doritos at? <laughs> Give me them. <laughs> the feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest, and silence fills the crowded hall as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast.
0: What you just heard wasn't actually Guy Fieri talking to a tavern wench in the Middle Ages. What? Through the magic of audio, we managed to bring that entirely fictionalized scenario straight to you. No, instead, this is the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. That's right, I'm doing the intro now.
1: He got me again. Welcome back, I'm Olivia, this is Aaron, who brings the spice.
0: That's right.
1: And today we're talking about spice.
0: And more specifically... The most wonderful product ever invented by rapacious American capitalism. The Dorito.
1: The Dorito.
0: This episode not brought to you by (laughs) Frito-Lay.
1: So I feel like before we delve both ideologically and physically into this bag of Doritos, I feel like maybe we need to sort of explain the background for why Doritos make such a compelling historical narrative.
0: Well, first of all, it's a funny name. It's an icon for... Awful yanks like yourself. It's one of the most iconic products ever made. But more importantly, there's a meme. You've seen it. You know what this is.
1: It's a meme. It's on Twitter, and it says, more or less, I feel like a single Dorito would kill a medieval peasant. And that's it. And there's there's riffs and variations on this joke. There's ones about
0: Victorian children,
1: Victorian children. There's ones about flavor blasted goldfish and Mountain Dew Baja Blast and all I've the never other.
0: Had Mountain Dew Baja Blast. What is it
1: like? It's blue, I think. It's the, cu- I had the taste some is blue, once, but the blue was the last thing I remember.
0: And that's when you died.
1: <laughs> but the joke here is that medieval people or people from the past in general would have been sort of um, completely bowled over, I guess you could say, by modern food, by processed food. Because they didn't have Doritos in the Middle Ages, from my understanding.
0: No, the scholars do not remain divided on that one. There were no Doritos in the 13th century. And our image of what people ate in the Middle Ages, as is so often the case with with every aspect of their lives, is unspeakably bland. It's your dig up... Your potato from the ground, you put it in a pot of boiling water, maybe. If you're lucky. And then you serve that single potato to your family of uh, your heavily pregnant wife and 16 gangrenous children.
1: And your, like, four grandparents who are just like, you know, sort of a Willy (laughs) Wonka-style all in one bed. (laughs) But we're here to challenge assumptions on this podcast, and we want to challenge the assumption that... A medieval person would have been killed by a Dorito.
0: And that a medieval person would not have had spicy food.
1: Yeah. I think we're so, the food that we eat today is like so extreme and we know that what we eat is hyper-processed. You and- mean
0: that birthday cake flavored Oreos aren't occurring naturally in nature? <laughs> but we're gonna go on a wild dive, you guys, into the wonderful world of flavor in the Middle Ages. You're going to be able to, by the end of this episode, you're going to be able to eat like a medieval person. I promise you. And I don't promise you. Don't. Don't hold me to that,
1: please. But before we do that, I think we need to set our baseline. Yeah. Let's put ourselves in the medieval mindset. And if you're not in the room with us holding a bag of cool original, which is British for cool ranch Doritos... Then Is I- Is that want... what that means? Yes, it's the, cause they don't have ranch dressing here. Um, so we're gonna put we're gonna put ourselves in the medieval peasant mindset, I think, and see if we can snack on these Doritos. Pity,
0: my lord! <laughs> Please! It's my time family for only your has Daily Dorito. My family Hang on. Gotta do some ASMR first. Oh yeah.
1: You know you know that shit you people like. Exactly. I know this does it for you. Well, there is, there's the girl who does ASMR that's like, you're dying of the plague.
0: <gasps> really?
1: Yeah, it's really good. She does like, um, she'll like count out coins and she's like, I guess you won't be needing me. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> I will save two to put over your eyes.
0: That's a sex thing, right? Yeah. For
1: someone? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Absolutely. I hate, I hate being alive. Anyways, back into the past. Okay, let me get
0: a Dorito. Let me get all up in this. Okay. I'm ready to take a bite of this Dorito. Cheers. Clink. Three, two, one. So that's what ranch is. Well, that's how you know.
1: Interesting. So, I mean, I actually wasn't, like, knocked over by that.
0: No, I felt like I've had more intense flavor experience. I do not feel flavor blasted. I do not feel the need to start doing the Guy Fieri voice again.
1: Yeah, which- No.
0: Fair warning is probably going to happen the longer this evening goes on.
1: I think it's interesting because I was looking online at the Doritos website. (gasps) And what I found was that a lot of people in the 21st century seem like they can't handle Doritos. So you can go on the Doritos website and review any one of their products if you so wish. And so I was looking at actually the page for Nacho Cheese Doritos. These aren't like the spicy ones. So I was reading some reviews. Here's one that says... Thanks, Dorito. Or whoever changed the original nacho cheese Doritos. My son is seven and wanted some regular nacho Doritos. He came crying. Not sure what happened. I said, these are regular nachos. But I put one in my mouth and it was on fire. He cried all night. Oh, no. Can I do one? Can I do one? Can I do one? Please.
0: I have been eating thesees since I was four years old. I used to lick the cheese off the chip and put them back during the family parties as a child. In the past five to seven years, the product has gone downhill. Just another case of profit over quality. Very Sad.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who admits to that on, on the internet? Apparently,
0: I mean... Matt Berry.
1: Wow. Licking them off and putting them back in the bowl. That's... <laughs> And they say the medieval world was unhygienic. (laughs) Here's the last one. Way too much seasoning Mm. and was extremely salty. Oh, no. Couldn't even finish the one chip (laughs) I had. (laughs) Imagine standing there sad with your half a Dorito looking at it. Looking defeated. I oh, if I've ever eaten less than one. I thought that that was sort of like the, you know, the atom. Minimum
0: serving size one.
1: Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And this is interesting because I also found an article, this is from 2015, from I Think the Mirror, about a 14-year-old schoolgirl in Scarborough, England, who was almost killed by a particularly spicy Dorito.
0: Look, it was the 2010s, it was a different time, people were more innocent, alright?
1: Now, admittedly, this was a bag of something that I believe has been discontinued called Dorito's Roulette, (laughs) in which... A small proportion of Doritos in every bag...
0: will make you shit yourself.
1: (laughs) ...is much, much spicier than the rest. That sounds incredible. And the school released a statement telling parents not to give their kids Doritos roulettes. And Doritos, the company, responded to the publicity by saying, If you can't take the heat...
0: Get out of the Doritos bag.
1: Exactly. Ah,
0: fantastic, fantastic.
1: But they definitely do trigger that sort of snackish impulse, don't they? So let's take a look at what is actually in Doritos, both for the purposes of understanding our own sort of uh, emotional and physical response to them, but also thinking about whether a medieval person would have been able to experience these same flavors. Yeah,
0: so you read out the main sort of ingredients, and I'm going to tell you to stop when we hit something that a medieval person would categorically never have experienced ever.
1: Let me just... So, ingredients. Corn.
0: Stop. So, corn comes from the Americas. There is absolutely no chance that before 1493, any European would have ever experienced corn, therefore would have never experienced the corn chip.
1: We can all agree that's pretty tragic, because corn chips are obviously delicious. But Mm -hmm. I think when we look at what the corn is doing in the Doritos, obviously, like, the corn flavor is delicious. But I think the corn is also sort of just the base in that it's the processed carb that, you know, all of the flavors and the seasoning go on to. And it is true that processed carbohydrates have been around for a long time. Mm -hmm. So in medieval Europe, the sort of predominant grain or starch was usually wheat or some other cereal crop. And most people would be eating whole wheat bread and whole wheat products. But for a really long time, people have been sort of sifting out all of the disgusting brown bits that have all the vitamins and are minerals in them <laughs> and reducing wheat and grains down to the pure, nutritionally empty, delicious, starchy bit that just does absolutely nothing for your daily nutritional needs. This is a really labor-intensive process before right. the Industrial Revolution, because you got to sift it all out by hand. Mm-hmm. And then you're throwing out calories and minerals and nutrients and stuff that, you know, the average person needs to survive. Yeah,
0: you can't necessarily afford to be that picky as a subsistence farmer.
1: Yeah. It's not impossible that the average person in medieval Europe would have tasted something like a pastry or a cake
0: or oh, no. something
1: made with white flour or sifted flour. But, yeah, it's not, it's not an everyday thing for them. The way it is for a lot of us,
0: it's a luxury.
1: Which is funny because when you process corn, when you when it undergoes this process called nixtamalization, which is when you kind of just like you kind of just treat it to make it easier to turn into dough, that actually makes the corn more nutritious um, and better. So Doritos are good for you. So Doritos are kind of good for you. Moving onwards, we've got rapeseed oil.
0: So I guess that passes.
1: They had vegetable oil in the Middle Ages as well. So, I mean, this is the first two ingredients are corn and oil. Mm-hmm. I think that's a pretty common junk food base, yeah. you know, throughout a lot of history. So,
0: you could kind of approximate, so far, you can approximate a Dorito. Exactly, yeah. A, du- a Dorito.
1: But yeah, I mean, if you think about like, you know, they've got like pita chips and stuff, you know, Mm -hmm. like crunchy, crispy sort of, you know, deep fried things made out of wheat rather than corn. I think largely I would say they scratch the same itch.
0: So, so far, so good.
1: All of the remaining ingredients in the Dorito are more or less flavoring. So we've got flavorings that I think you can broadly break down into three categories. So first of all, we've got salt. Lovely, lovely salt Mm is in... Just about everything we eat. That's kind of one of, the, one of the primary flavors of the Dorito, I would say. You get a, a salty experience. And I think there's a common misconception around salt in the Middle Ages mm-hmm. that it wasn't something that people necessarily had a lot of or that was widely available. Eh-eh. Uh-uh. Because if you go on the internet, you get people saying things like, oh, did you know that salt was worth its weight in gold in the Middle Ages? Or some people say salt was worth more than gold by weight in the Middle Ages. What? Which is, which is weird. Um, we spend so much time sort of trying to explain why people think stupid things about the Middle Ages that I don't even That's know if we the... can try to explain where this one came from, but we can explain that it's wrong.
0: I think it sort of comes from, if I had to guess, this sort of truth- ish, that Roman soldiers were paid in salt. And so people are like, oh, it must be incredibly valuable then.
1: Well, there's actually no evidence that Roman soldiers were ever paid in salt. Despite despite the fact that the word salary comes from the word salt. What? It's possible that they were given weekly or monthly or regular payments specifically to buy salt, but there's no evidence that anyone was ever paid in salt.
0: Well, now I look foolish.
1: But the word salary, sal is salts in several different Romance languages, uh, yeah, comes from the word salt. Um,
0: well, that's stupid.
1: And it makes sense that the Romans wouldn't really have been, you know, using salt as payment because Italy famously is very coastal, mm-hmm. surrounded by ocean. And what have you got in the ocean? Loads of salt. Now, making salt, getting salts from the ocean, I should say, it's not as easy as all that, in that you have to live somewhere where the conditions are right to basically be constantly evaporating massive amounts of water. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a faff. It's kind of a bit of a production. You need big pans um, and a place to evaporate it. And it shouldn't be too humid, because then right. your water's not going to evaporate. Your salt's not going to crystallize. But really, once you have this setup going, it's like free salt forever. Yeah. It's pretty easy.
0: It's also relatively low energy, so it doesn't require you to burn a lot of stuff or, like, get a hundred horses to pull a big thing. Yeah. Which which were the only... (laughs) Two (laughs) of the only three ways to generate energy in the Middle Ages.
1: Yeah, so it's it's essentially... I mean, you have inland salt mines and inland salt lakes, but really, this is mostly a solar-powered endeavor. Hashtag sustainable. Oh, my God. And so it's pretty cheap. And that means that in places where you can make salt, salt is pretty abundant. Of course, this means that in places where you can't make salt, it's not quite as simple. The salt has to be shipped in, over sea, or over land. Salt is pretty heavy because it's rocks. Um, And also, if you are shipping salt, you want to ship a lot of it. Because the primary usage for salt in the Middle Ages wasn't actually seasoning food. Although it was used to season food. The main reason people bought and sold salt was to preserve food. And you need a lot of salt to preserve food. Yeah. I think something that emphasizes this a bit further is the fact that actually I was looking for medieval salt prices on the internet. And I couldn't actually find anywhere where there was evidence of salt being sold by weight. Right. So this is what people say, salt was worth its weight in gold. People weren't weighing their salt. They were selling it by the liter or by the bushel, which is another volumetric form of measurement. And I think that also gives you a sense of how salt was bought and sold. Mm. Because if you imagine something like gold or other spices like pepper or saffron, and we'll get to those later. Oh, yes. <laughs> those were sold by weight because they were sold in very small quantities. They were used very sparingly. And they were sold in very precise amounts. And so the time and effort that it took to weigh it out on a scale, get a scale in the first place, was worth it because of these ridiculously high profit margins you get on it. Uh-huh. But salt, you're selling basically by the pint. Um, and so that gives you, I think, a sense for how this was something where they were trading large amounts of it. And it wasn't as important to be as precise in sort yeah. of how you were trading and dealing with salt. But... Where I was able to find evidence of salt prices, um, some of the places where salt was cheapest, um, one was Britain, where salt from the 12th to the 15th century varied, but it was usually um, at its most expensive. It was about the same cost vo- um, per you know unit of volume as wheat. So that's right. interesting. Salt was cheaper than wheat in Britain. Sometimes it was about as expensive. In Sweden, um, on the other hand, where salt production wasn't really a thing, it was about 10 times as expensive as wheat at its most expensive. So we get that um, you paid about a penny for a pint of salt in 15th century England. That's about a quarter of the wages that you would earn in a day as a sort of humble, simple laborer.
0: That's pretty much what I'm paying at the moment. <laughs>
1: So if you imagine how much you make in a day, divided yeah. by four, and then buy a pint or half a liter approximately of salt, that's still pretty expensive compared, you know, if you think about how much one makes in a day. But it's a necessary expense. So we have not only that salt was pretty widely available, but it was also pretty widely consumed and bought and sold, even by people who weren't members of the, the wealthiest classes. So... Moving onwards, the next sort of flavorings we get in our bag of Doritos, we've got all sorts of nice things. We've got cheese powder. Cheese, yes. That's nice. We've got flavor enhancers, which include monosodium glutamate.
0: I'm not going to patronize you people. You know that they didn't have that in the Middle Ages.
1: Pretty interesting that you should say that. So the main reasons why these things, uh, which we can sort of break flavor enhancers down into two categories. We have glutamates and um, nucleotides, and these are sort of two chemicals that are synthesized or isolated in labs and are added to food to make them more savory. Mm -hmm. So That flavor is known often as umami. It's a savory
0: Ooh,
1: flavor. Ooh, mommy. Ooh, mommy. That's a spicy Dorito. And yeah, it's true that these things didn't exist in the middle. You couldn't go to Ye old supermarket and buy a jar of MSG, which you can do now. MSG in particular, I think, is one of the most widely used artificial flavorings in probably the whole world at this point. What does it even taste like? It tastes like Dorito. Oh, for fuck's sake. Um, it tastes... A lot like, it's kind of like the flavoring in soy sauce. It tastes almost. like good. Yeah, <laughs> more or less. Because the the way the reason why MSG as a chemical was isolated in the first place was in 1908 by a Japanese scientist named Kikunai Ikeda, who set out to try to understand what made miso soup so delicious. Mm. So he, uh, he isolated MSG, but... Remember, the re- this flavor he was looking for was something that he was tasting in his food in the first place. Mm-hmm. So he found that there are loads of foods that are rich in MSG, this really savory flavor. So soy is a big one. Um, seaweed has a lot of it. Parmesan cheese mm,
0: is one of the does. foods.
1: So if you imagine Parmesan cheese, what kind of makes it like a bit more intense and delicious than, say, your average cheddar or gouda, which are more mild. It's the naturally occurring MSG.
0: So that's why when I was a child, I would go into the kitchen and I'd get the sliver of Parmesan cheese and I would
1: oh yeah get a
0: knife and I'd just, a butter knife, and I'd just quietly just cut off a little chunk.
1: Oh yeah. And I'd
0: have some of that sweet, sweet Parmesan flavor and I'd run away.
1: Yeah, because your your body craves, your body loves the MSG.
0: My body loves Parmesan, I'll tell you that. <laughs> that's caused me many problems throughout my life.
1: <laughs> and Parmesan cheese was something they had in the Middle Ages. Famously, Italian author Boccaccio, in his work The Decameron, wrote about Parmesan cheese. Mm. More specifically, he described a mythical land known in Italian as Chucagna, which is sort of an idealized form of paradise, sort of a land of the lotus eaters, which in English in a sort of ironic sense that was probably, no. probably lost no. on, on English speakers <laughs> no. at the time. The land no, is called, possible. The land is called cocaine.
0: <laughs> to translate it more artistically, Flavortown.
1: Flavortown! <laughs> and he writes about one of the... So this is Italian heaven, basically. One of the, <laughs> one of the things he writes about... one of the defining sort of features he right he describes the topography of italian heaven one of the things that's there he says on a mountain made all of grated parmesan cheese dwell folk that do nothing else but make macaroni and ravioli boil them in broth and then throw them down the mountain to be scrambled for Mm. you know in an episode
0: of the simpsons Where Homer will have, like, a fantasy about going to the land of chocolate. Yeah. This is that but for a cheese.
1: Absolutely. Wallace
0: from Wallace and Grant
1: would get a kick out of it as well. Oh, God. He'd have a stroke. Um, (laughs) He'd die. (laughs) They'd have to bury him at Par... Bury my heart at Parmesan Mountain. (laughs) So, the, the bottom line here is they did have Parmesan cheese in the Middle Ages, mm. and they had these, like, savory sort of flavorings that you get. Um, so, I don't think it's... Even though they didn't have, like, you know, lab-synthesized sort of hyper-flavors, basically all of, the, all of the same sort of, you know, flavors were there. So, we've got our sort of salty and our savory, but the last thing, the most important part of any Dorito... Is the spice. spice yes?
0: Which brings us to this is a sort of wine, a really shitty wine tasting that we're doing. Is if there were two wines, and the wines were Doritos. <laughs> so these are chili Wave flavor corn chips, Doritos, and those uh, do the thing.
1: kind of worri- I'm kind of worried because they're I'm, a
0: really upsetting color. I'm
1: a medieval peasant and I've never had a spicy Dorito before. I'm worried this is going to be the thing that does it.
0: I really have never liked the color of these. They're for very, the they're very orange. All right. right. Well, cheers.
1: Chin chin. Wow, that's not that <gasps> spicy. Oh no, we're losing him. Oh no, he never had a spicy Dorito before. His first was his last. <clears throat> Oh, he's back. What happened to me? Oh, no! <laughs> Medieval Guy Fieri, you were gone for a minute. I was possessed by the, by a, the ghost of a really boring man. <laughs> he kept talking about Constantinople. Your eyes rolled back in your head. You kept muttering something about Mediterranean women. <laughs> That was in a private conversation held in confidence. The question now is, did medieval people have the spice? Well, okay,
0: and the answer is, eh. Some. <laughs> so, these are made with, dear God, I hope, chili. And chili is native to the Americas. So, no, they didn't. The first recorded instance of a European trying chili is actually from Christopher Columbus. Pause for booing.
1: Uh.
0: Fantastic! This is what we pay you the big bucks for. <laughs> yeah, um, Christopher Columbus's voyage in 1493, where they basically just like this is some kind of really fucked up pepper they've got over here, and that brings us on to the other kind of spice that they did have in the Middle Ages, which was pepper. Yeah, and so yeah, and, and you had lots of other flavors. So like by the Middle Ages, you know, saffron is being grown in Europe, sugar is being grown in Cyprus, in, uh, in Sicily, in Andalusia, and of course you have pepper, which is making up, I'd say, about 40% of the kind of spice market at this stage. But of course most of the spices that people were using um, in, in the medieval period were not grown in Europe. They were imported. They were imported from places like India, primarily uh, southern India, in like modern day Kerala. Um, or or Java and in Indonesia, which is quite an undertaking, isn't it? It's,
1: it's quite the journey, don't you think?
0: Yeah, if you want to bring something anything spices or camels or people or whatever from uh, from southern Asia to Europe, there are basically two ways to do it, right? You can either go overland and that's a big no-no because right of, right away you hit in no particular order uh, the Himalayas. <laughs> The Whoa. Gobi Desert, <laughs> northern Persia, the Caucasus, and then just like
1: a huge chunk Germany,
0: Germany, which is presents its own problems. Uh, yeah, boo.
1: I'm German. Um, I can say <laughs> it. Um.
0: Or you can do the much easier thing. You can take the coward's way out and go by sea. So the sea route is a much easier and much quicker. Basically, what you do is. You start from, say, southern India or Yemen, and you take your stuff by boat up to a a city on the coast of Egypt or Sudan, like Haidab or Khusayr, and then you'll unload your stuff into a bunch of caravans, which is to say, onto a bunch of camels and slaves, and they will take your stuff to the Nile. And then you can get it on a different boat, and you can uh, travel up the Nile to Alexandria, where you will hand over your stuff to Europeans in a big market and then they can sort of take it the rest of the way, right? Now that's kind of ingenious, right? It's a it's a huge trade network, but that's also ridiculously absurdly horribly complicated.
1: Yeah, it's um there's a great website that I found out about recently which I think it only exists for Europe right now, but it's like medieval Google Maps. And then it has all <laughs> these different cities and you say you put in two cities and you say calculate route And it gives you the quickest route, and it tells you like what amenities are available in each town, how long it would take by foot, or by horse, you got some routes by sea. But I think the point that they're trying to make with this map is that any kind of journey between countries, let alone continents, in medieval Europe was a massive undertaking. I mean... You can fly to you know Rome on a for a, for a day. You can, yeah. you can take a day trip in another country. Well you right can now. do you
0: can do this trip if you want. You can fly right now from London to Yemen to India.
1: Yeah, buy right? some pepper and be back within 24 <laughs> yeah, hours. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Unfortunately, for the people of the Middle Ages, that was not feasible. But the problem was that in Europe, and especially from like the 11th century onwards, the desire for spice was inexhaustible this is it was it was everywhere especially pepper which was the, which was by and large the cheapest spice yep one of my favorite sort of anecdotes about pepper in the middle ages is uh, in the vander which was the sort of most popular medieval cookbook the author has a whole section where he complains about how oh uh, you go to these rural taverns and all they've got is vegetable soup and pepper. <laughs> like pepper was it's
1: better than the average rural tavern in like modern Britain, I would say. They yeah. don't even give you the pepper most of the time. They just
0: microwave a they just microwave a chicken burger. <laughs> yeah, so it's so it's, it's it's still something that's expensive. It's more expensive than uh, than than, than salt but it's a, it's, a, it's a bit of a necessary luxury. It's something that everybody would have the opportunity to buy, for the most part, if not always the means. As a result of that massive appetite for spice, there was incredible amounts of money to be made and on both ends of that journey. So like I said, you would start with people bringing spices from India and the rest of Southern Asia to Europe, and then Europeans, mostly, they would take up the journey and, and distribute the spice to the rest of Europe. So pepper was almost ubiquitous, but still relatively expensive. And Europeans did not actually have a super clear idea of how pepper was made. Now you re- may remember, all the way back in episode one, we had a conversation about how uh, European travel logs wrote about the production of pepper. Essentially the story was, there are snakes guarding pepper, and they're very attached to this pepper. So you need to burn, you need to get fire, burn the trees, which will blacken the pepper, but oh well, to chase the snakes away, right? Put a pin in that.
1: Intriguing.
0: Intrig- intriguing, isn't it? Because there are Europeans that go to India, you know, by, by land or by sea. People end up there occasionally, and their accounts of how pepper is produced, fascinatingly, are wrong in the same way.
1: If everyone at home thinks that Pepper is guarded by a really sick dragon, <laughs> you wouldn't want to be the one. Cause like you know, your family lives on a farm. They don't have much on. Television is like four hundred fifty years away. You don't want to be the person to be like. Actually, dragons aren't real, and Pepper is just a fucked up berry.
0: You don't want to be a killjoy. Yeah. So this is there's this French monk who goes to India, and he sort of he describes how Pepper gets produced, right? So he's like, no, 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 no. So you don't like burn it that's nonsense it's blackened and it's left out in the sun and you dry it so far so good and then he's like but also it is guarded by crocodiles (laughs) which is not true
1: maybe he saw a crocodile like next to a pepper tree maybe confused i have my
0: own theory but like i said we're gonna come back to that
1: like when you're in the store and someone asks you if you work there and you're just like wearing a shirt (laughs) so you think he went up to
0: a crocodile
1: I was like, do you work here? Like, I think the crocodile probably felt too embarrassed to say no. So he just said yes. Yeah, I and guess. He said, get away from my pepper.
0: <laughs> so yeah, like I said, put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that. Anyway, in the meantime, the question that gets kind of elided when uh, a lot of European sources are writing about um, about the pepper trade and, and, and the spice trade more generally is, all right, well, who is like... Who's actually bringing all this stuff? right? Who is, who is actually doing the lion's share of the transportation of these products? Because it's, it's, a, it's a huge undertaking in and of itself. And the answer, I think, is fascinating. In the medieval Islamic world, we know from sort of official sort of state records of various countries that there was this general caste of people called the Harimi. Now the Harimi were not an ethnic group. They were a sort of profession, essentially, and they could be from all over the Muslim world. They were these sort of entrepreneurial families who would establish these dynastically held trading companies. I know it's thrilling stuff just now, but just stick with me. And because of the fact that, especially after the the Crusades, the um, leaders like Saladin are very hostile to the idea of Christians sort of having a, a controlling influence in trade with Asia, they are able to establish pretty much a monopoly. And these, these houses get phenomenally rich, right? They basically invent modern banking, <laughs> essentially a, 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 a little while before the Italians do, because they have so much liquid assets that they need to keep track of. Genuinely, they have too much money. They become, they become these, it's a good problem to have, I know, and they become sort of the key players in the financial markets of the, of the Middle East, because again, they have so much money. There's so much money to be made.
1: And I think all over Europe and the East, there's kind of a prestige associated with spices and the yes. spice trade, so you see that it is kind of... Um, not that it's, the value is necessarily artificially inflated, because like we've said, you know, they're, they're turning over a lot of spice, but often you do have one group or one company who's given sort of like sole privilege Mm -hmm. to trade spices. Yeah. And that's pretty special for them because yeah, then they do basically control the market. And you saw that with salt even in in Mm -hmm. Europe.
0: Well, we know that, we know that the Harimi were given basically licenses by the, uh, by the Egyptian sultans to sort of ha- to, to, to have free passage over some pretty treacherous waters. And by the way, we know that the exact same process is happening on the other side of the supply chain, because, you know, who is distributing all of these um, all these spices to Europe? It's these, you know, devastatingly corrupt, <laughs> <laughs> incredibly incestuous Italian-Spanish families who are doing the exact same thing. And it's sort of that process of international trade... Like I said, it generates this these liquid assets, this this value that's actually stored in money instead of stuff you take out of the ground, yeah. which you then need to put somewhere, which leads to banking. So there you go. Doritos lead to banking.
1: Incredible. They
0: make it inevitable. And what's more, Doritos invent the modern state. Because of course, right, let's step back a second, okay? So not only is this phenomenally um profitable for the companies that are actually doing the trading, it's equally phenomenally profitable for the state that has the controlling interest in where the spice is flowing. So like we said, the key route for the sea trade of spice is Egypt, right? Egypt at this point is run by the Mamluk Sultanate, which we do not have time to get into. They're very cool. It's basically a, a, a cast of warrior slaves from all over the Middle East who are sort of the real power behind the throne of this caliph who is, suppo- who is supposedly like the sort of you know, head of Islam, but really it's the Sultan who, like I said, is a slave. God. That's very cool. complicated, very badass place, right? Now, the Mamluk Sultanate, they had these huge amounts of money flowing through their territory because, like I said, it's the closest thing that you have to a sea route between the Mediterranean world and India. By the way, same reason why. When that boat got stuck in the Suez Canal a couple years ago, it was such a disaster. So the Mamluk sultans are seeing all this money coming through their territory, and they want a piece of it. So they develop a very sophisticated bureaucracy with civil servants and, like, boring bureaucrats who have to sort of count all the money, make sure that everybody's paying the tax that they're supposed to. And by the way, in the late Middle Ages, the Mamluk sultans basically go, you know what, fuck this. We don't need the middlemen anymore and basically passed a law that said, actually, no, to trade spice, you basically need to work for the sultan. So these formerly independent uh, trading families, which are, by the way, the bedrock of how trade works in the Middle Ages all over the world, get subsumed by an increasingly bureaucratic and increasingly absolutist state. Boom! Wow. That's the modern state. That is, the the state regulates trade and moves into areas of life that were not previously controlled by the government that is the process of modernization in wow. a nutshell
1: so you're saying that we have modern states not because of in concern for human rights but because of financial interests
0: Ab- i'm absolutely saying and i'm saying oh no we have modern states because of,
1: we well we have modern states even
0: more accurately because of concern for spicy food
1: what Because it's kind of a a running gag. Europe colonized the rest of the world for spice and then didn't put spices in their food. Which I think is... Which is half true. (laughs) I think, yeah, it's important to note that it wasn't about the spices. It was about Mm -hmm. financial control. And yeah. control of the markets and the, the significance of the spices, just like how the Frito Lay com- company
0: owns was, all the crisps,
1: owns every Dorito, exactly, even the ones that are in your belly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Legally, I don't think that's true.
1: It's true. Lawyer, I corporate corporate lawyers of
0: our corporate lawyers of our audience, please reach out. Remember when I told you to put a pin in that image of snakes guarding, uh, guarding pepper. Let's remove that pin for a second. Let's consider what's being represented here. Not literally, but figuratively. What's being represented here is the idea that the spice is not, uh, is not expensive because it is hard to produce. It's expensive because it is controlled by hostile entities.
1: So it's a bit of a feedback loop, almost, in that people do want spice, uh-huh. so people control spice routes to capitalize on that, mm-hmm. which sort of stokes the fires of the spice trade and that people yes. realize that they can enter a relatively uncompetitive market if they find a new way to get spices.
0: Uh, yeah, and by the way, this is something that, this is an idea that recurs constantly in European ideas about Asia. So, for example, uh, Marco Polo when he's writing about uh, Chipangu, as he calls it, or in Japan, he doesn't go there, but he hears about it uh, in China, uh, he talks about how the roofs are paved with, go- with gold, and gold is as abundant as lead is in Europe, right? The implication there is that there is there are riches aplenty for anyone brave enough to go and get it, and the uh, and, and the natives, as it were, don't appreciate the value of what they have again we've seen that before
1: absolutely
0: <laughs> maybe consider that the reason the snakes guarding pepper is such an evocative image that recurs constantly even in the stories of Europeans who go to asia and would know better is because they're saying something about what about 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 the actual Economic relationships or what they think the actual economic relationships that produce pepper are the snakes are not snakes The snakes are a stand-in for the Harimi and the Venetians and everybody else who controls the price of pepper and controls access to pepper they are marking up the prices essentially to keep the supply low and the price high and by the way that's not an entirely unreasonable thing to think. We know that, depending on the spice, the Venetians who were buying um, were buying spices from the Harimi were marking it up by between 40 and 200%, making outrageous profits.
1: Sort of circling back to the idea of prices, um, you have that you can get about a pint of salt for about a penny, a quarter of your day's wages. Now just a few grams of saffron or mm. cinnamon or cloves or another expensive spice. That's, that's a couple days' wages, you know. Yeah. And that's a, a minuscule amount.
0: Let's say you're the ruler or perhaps an entrepreneurial businessman in a relatively poor, very peripheral, um, quite small country with access to the Atlantic.
1: Let's give this country, a th- this theoretical country, a name.
0: Well, they've got ports...
1: Interesting.
0: And gals.
1: Let's call it Galchaport.
0: So we're talking about Portugal, right? So all that is a preface to say that in 1497, Vasco de Garma and a flotilla of Portuguese ships set off on a pretty harebrained mission. They were going to find a sea route to Asia. And their idea was let's sail down Africa, right? Something that nobody's done for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. At least how not how
1: big can Africa be?
0: Pretty fucking big it turns out. But they do make it. They make it past the Cape of Good Hope, which is, nautically speaking, fucking hell.
1: And they, they know how big Africa is, yeah. I should mention.
0: Oh yeah, no, they they're not at like they're not deluded about the sort of <laughs> size and general shape of Africa, but nobody's really tried this before. Miraculously, they come out the other side, they make their way up east, up the East African coast, sort of causing havoc in Mombasa as they go. And they arrive, eventually, in Calicut, in uh, in southern India. And uh, Vasco de Garma's uh, messenger walks on shore, and he's greeted by a very befuddled Arabic tradesman who, who happens to speak Spanish, coincidentally. And by the way, what an image. You're, you're, you're sitting in Calicut, you're a genteel uh, Muslim trader, you've been hanging out, you know, every year you go and you hang out with your Indian friends, and then you go back and you fleece these Venetians, right? It's, it's a good life. Maybe occasionally there's a rogue sort of monk who shows up, and you can show him the crocodiles. <laughs> but, it, and then you see...
1: Just by crocodiles, you mean your fists. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's Catch what I call these my. Crocodiles. That's what I call my digits. <laughs> and uh, and then suddenly you just see these giant fucking wooden ships with with the cross on them, and you're just like, oh, not the cross. to be honest, you're probably just like, huh,
1: <laughs> what?
0: So he he goes up to to the messenger, who I imagine in my mind's eye is like. Incredibly seasick, swaying, has been has had this epic journey. Looks like shit, and he's like in Spanish. He's like, the "Fuck, are you doing here? What, what? What? What is this?" And the messenger is like, "We come in search of Christians and spices." Oh no! And from that point on, it's fucking on, right? So suddenly, the Portuguese are participating in the spice trade as well. And suddenly, there's competition with the Muslims and the Venetians. This is a disaster, by the way, for Venice. It, it completely upends their sort of, their, their monopoly, and, and, it, and it leads to a sort of gradual decline of, of Venetian sort of naval and economic power in the Mediterranean. It's also pretty bad news for the Harimi, who now have more competition. But the problem is that now, lots of other people... Start to get the idea in their head that they can get to Asia through their own routes. So maybe you don't. Maybe you don't have to go uh, through Alexandria. Maybe you don't have to go around Africa. Maybe, if you uh, sail and sail and sail, you can hit Asia.
1: It's a pretty insane thing to do because even the Portuguese are sailing around the coast.
0: Yeah, the Portuguese, like the northern, the, the 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 in the North Atlantic at least. The, uh, the, the the way that the sort of the the winds blow is in the wrong direction if you're trying to cross the Atlantic from east to west it's it's phenomenally dangerous way infinitely more dangerous than just trying to sail around Africa We're right? talking
1: about the nautical equivalent of closing your eyes and walking out into traffic essentially yeah
0: basically so you need an absolute crank some like utter weirdo
1: some freak no one really knows where he's from. Maybe Genoese. He might be Genoese. It's hard to tell. He might not be.
0: There we go. We're back again. Our good friend, friend of the show. Uh, no, uh, not friend of the show. Christopher Columbus. Boo. Who uh, eventually?
1: Sorry, I think there's a ghost.
0: It's the ghost of Christopher Columbus. Oh
1: no, he Christopher. Kno- he knows we're about to talk some. Christopher,
0: shit. I have some words I'd like to share with you about your treatment of uh, indigenous people in the uh, North American islands. Right now I'm recording, so you need to go away. But afterwards, it's fucking on.
1: No hablo inglés. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Christopher. So he might have been a pretty brutal, cruel, kind of heartless guy, but he was also stupid enough to sail across the Atlantic.
0: Because Europeans, contrary to popular belief, knew the world was round, right? They, they, theoretically, you could get across the Atlantic and reach Asia, but there's nothing in the fucking way. And Christopher Columbus, one of the reasons why he even undertakes the voyage, is because he's so dead fucking wrong about where Japan is relative yeah. like compared to what everybody else has correctly identified the the earth is yay big you can never get to japan ever um from europe directly and he's like no i can but he's he's incredibly lucky because there's america in the way
1: thank god if america hadn't been there he never would have made it <sighs>
0: If America hadn't been there a lot of good things would have happened yeah
1: <laughs> definitely
0: so Christopher Columbus and his ship full of like bedraggled European uh, rapacious murderers essentially eventually arrive uh, arrive uh, in the islands near North America and set about sort of enslaving and uh, stealing and Straight up getting lied to as well by the natives. The, the classic story yeah. of, like, where are the dog people at? <laughs> oh, next village, next <laughs> island. Yep. Cool. Um, but, of course, once Christopher Columbus does it, it and comes back with things like peppers, as we've mentioned, there's no going back from that. Because all of a sudden, you know, they're, they're, yeah, okay, maybe you can't get to Asia, but there's a gigantic continent two continents that are accessible and full of unbelievable bounty as far as they're aware and so lots of countries the portuguese the spanish the dutch the english start colonizing and they start not only bringing their stuff with them but they start bringing stuff back
1: yeah so it's funny because despite the fact that most of europe and sort of asia and the middle east were engaged in this desperate battle to control the spice trade mm-hmm. when europeans started voyaging to the new world as it's called the americas they weren't so they weren't quite aware of everything that these two continents had to offer so at first there was sort of a, a large amount of enslavement. There were plantations yeah. and mines, and, you know... There was a focus on the, the natural resources that were already known, but they don't grow black pepper No. in South America or North America, and they don't have a lot of the th- spices and a lot of the foodstuffs that Europeans are yeah. looking Yeah, Chile is
0: kind of the exception.
1: Well, yeah, they didn't know about Oh, chilies, no, of course, though. yeah. So really only sort of gradually over the next couple of centuries do europeans start to realize that actually the 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 real benefits or some of the the biggest benefits that this continent has to offer is the food
0: yeah so things like the potato that's right all those references i've been making for potatoes jokes on you i know I know they didn't have potatoes. <laughs> it's a joke.
1: It was a setup.
0: This was a bit all along, and I'm not going to do it ever again.
1: I mean, you could just rattle off uh, a pretty much endless list of things that are staple foods, that are cornerstones of national dishes.
0: Cornerstones.
1: Cornerstones, so right? So corn. Corn. But
0: more importantly, tomatoes. Tomatoes. Sorry, tomatoes. Italians. You um, got that from the indigenous americans.
1: That's right, chocolate,
0: chocolate.
1: I don't think people focus on that one enough, but no. absolutely. No. Pairs bad. very
0: well well with chili, coincidentally.
1: Yes, it does. And, and you
0: can is. use corn by the way to make things like maize as well, which opens up whole new dimensions in cooking. So like not only are sort of the americas I mean I mean obviously the people in the americas are being devastated by plague and and having their sort of entire worlds upended by the arrival of people who did not fit into their, like, political and social structures at all. But also Europeans are starting to change. Europe is not going to go back in its box. Neither Neither is the Middle East, neither is Asia. There's no going back once you've had that kind of contact. That's one of the reasons why people generally accept that the Middle Ages kind of ends pretty definitively with the turn of the, or the beginning of the 16th century. Because... Once you have regular in contact between the Americas, or you know, the New World, or whatever you want to call it, and Europe, the, the social structure can't survive. The, the, the culture d- can't survive that. It yeah. upends everything.
1: It's this massive confluence of different factors. Mm-hmm. The sort of refinement of the printing press so that books are able to be mass produced You have globalization... The fall sort of, of Constantinople. Spurred by this yeah, that's spurred by this massive sea trade. This the fall of Constantinople, the Protestant Reformation, sort of sparking new ideas. Yeah, and it's it's just this sense of the world's the the pace perhaps picking up a little bit, which isn't to say that things didn't progress and the world didn't progress in the Middle Ages, but, but they
0: take a pretty fucking hard handbrake turn.
1: Exactly, and this is also the start of colonialism, I would mm-hmm. say, as oh, we know it. Oh, definitively, yeah. In terms of, you know, going and sort of parking your ships on uh, foreign shores.
0: Yeah, the the, the Portuguese are the, are the innovators of all of this. Of course, they get, like, muscled out by the Dutch, you get muscled out by the English eventually. But, like, the Portuguese innovate the idea of, you can just put your, send your gunships to some, like, poor coastal town, like Goa or Macau, and just say you belong to us now or we have preferent we you have to sign this trading charter that coincidentally also benefits us enormously and you not at all so yeah there's no there is no going back the spice trade the international trade of spice it unleashes something eventually that is not going back in its bottle you asked me at the start of this episode would a dur- a single dorito Would a a Dorito kill a medieval peasant? I look at this Dorito, this corn chip, slathered in chili and spices from all over the world, and I say, this Dorito killed every medieval peasant. It killed the medieval world. The hunger for spice was a crucial driving force in the creation of a globalized, modern world. It built international banking. It built the modern administrative state in some parts of the world it colonized the fucking americas
1: <laughs> and i think it's it's proof of sort of you know the the success of this massive industry that now i can go to the store and buy two bags of doritos one cool original and one sweet, hot chili or whatever, <laughs> sexy ch- chili heat wave. That's even worse. sexy chili, <laughs> sexy chili Doritos for less than what I make in half an hour yeah. of, of my time. I mean, it's, it's ubiquitous now and to kind of, you know, take it back to a, a sort of more material kind of more, you know, physical, emotional response, a Dorito would have, probably kill the medieval person because they'd be like, oh my god, this is this is incredible. This is everything we've been looking for, you know? It
0: is the idealization of what the medieval palette was all about.
1: Exactly. We live in Europe and here we are reaping the rewards of uh, this massive system of exploitation mm-hmm. that starts all over the world and ends with us sitting in my living room eating doritos and recording a podcast
0: I'm getting really I'm getting really preachy <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's but it's, it, it's interesting
0: what do we what do we do now with this information?
1: even though it is a bit of a silly question would a, a, a dorito kill a medieval peasant? I think we can say you know based on the evidence, the obsession with spices and the obsession with finding, you know, with with finding and exploiting these resources that people were constantly sort of seeking out, you know, new culinary extremes. And they were yeah. high, highly, They you know, they prized very highly spices and things that gave food flavor. And this isn't sort of a, you know, this wasn't a new thing and it wasn't something that ever went away. No. This is, you know, foodstuffs have been and flavorings have been sort of some of the most expensive, valuable commodities to trade for basically all of human history.
0: Well, shit. I don't, I don't, I don't know what to do now. I, just, I, I, have, I, have, I have very complicated feelings looking at this Dorito.
1: Put it in your mouth. You don't have to look at
0: it. Hang on. Okay.
1: Oh, my God. I'm transforming. No. Put him back. I'm trying. I can't. Oh no! Oh no! For those of you who aren't with us in the room right now, I'm the, growing a visor out of my head. Medieval evil guy Fieri is bursting out of yeah. Aaron's chest, like, like the, an alien. Like the chest, chest alien. from Aliens. <laughs> like the alien. alien. Did you say aliens? No, there's chest bursters and aliens
0: too. What are you talking about? Aliens is a movie. I know. Hey,
1: everybody. <laughs> Well, that's about gonna do us for this episode of Weird Medieval Guys. Thank you so much for listening, everybody! Say the title of the show again Weird Medieval Taverns, Alehouses, and Inns! Woohoo! So, yeah, um, I hope that was a, a spicy listening experience if you catch my drift.
0: I don't. Please explain down, the joke. That
1: went down like a lead balloon, <laughs> <laughs> like a gold balloon in medieval Japan.
0: Oh. Wonderful!
1: Thank you all so much for tuning in. I hope this was interesting. Thank you, by the way, as well to everyone for a hundred reviews. Well on over a hundred now, yeah, a hundred. Well over
0: a 5 star reviews.
1: And only our fifth episode. This.
0: I know. I know. It's. 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 This hasn't really gone the way I expected.
1: <laughs>
0: I don't know what I expected, but I didn't. I. I didn't expect this. Well, the, 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 the response. I mean, I definitely expected to be uh, sitting with you in an incredibly hot room doing a bad Guy Fieri impression talking about the Portuguese spice trade. It's
1: kind of the bread and butter of our friendship, I would say. Yeah, it's all,
0: it's, it's, we're like this off the show as well.
1: <laughs> so feel free to follow me on Twitter at Olivia underscore underscore MS or at Weird Medieval on Twitter. To follow weird medieval guys, the only Twitter account that posts weird medieval guys. Seriously.
0: So far, uh, you have a you have a Harimi style trade monopoly on cute images of like weird dragons. If
1: I see any of you post a weird medieval guy, I am gonna tax the hell out of you and block off the trade. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: and I am and I am at Aaron spelled A R A N P Tappers uh, on Twitter. Until next time,
1: take it easy!